vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I know, I know. Ah, this is a cinch. Here, I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... Welcome back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made, or the Essential Films. Uh, I'm Adolfo Costa, and I'm joined by my co-host, my partner in crime, uh, my co-director, if you will, uh, Mr. Mark Espinosa. How are you doing today? Hey, Adolfo, check this out. Look, I look up, I look down. <laughs> I look up, I look down. You see, I'm cured, and nobody had to die in the process. So I'm pretty proud of that. There you go. So it's just that simple. So podcast is over then, right? We're done. Pretty much. <laughs> um, so last week we talked about uh, the God. Last not last week. Last time we talked about the Godfather. Uh, this time we're going to be talking about, as you just alluded to, Alfred Hitchcock's classic Vertigo. I've been on pins and needles waiting for this one because this is one that, I mean, in its contemporary release wasn't really well regarded, but over the years has been really looked upon as the masterpiece that it is, and I'm very happy about that. Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. So usually uh, at the beginning of the show, uh, we go we go over you know some of the accolades uh, that the film has got, uh, has achieved over the years. Um, this is going to be a short list for Vertigo, unfortunately. Uh, let's let's look here what, what we got. Um, in back in the 1950s when it was first released, uh, it was um, honored and nominated for a Directors Guild Award. And it was nominated for two Academy Awards, one for Best Art Direction and one for Best Sound. And it didn't win either. Yeah. Uh, it, it didn't, no Best Picture, no Best Director, no Best Actor, no Best Actress. Um, and as we go through this, we're going to kind of talk about how insanely, insanely misguided that is. Uh, and I know it was a different time and people didn't, you know, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, but... What, how can you look at this movie and not just want to just throw awards at it? Here's the thing. Um, I feel that at this time, you know, Hitchcock was still kind of their contemporary. So 
he wasn't really be his films weren't really being dissected as much as we we all like to do that you know today. And I think what probably did it was the whole thing like, I mean the thing about Hitchcock and you see this as you watch his films and you study his films is that he doesn't care too much for logical stuff. Like he doesn't care about giving you a logical story more so as to shock you and to bring you into the story, to the emotions of the characters. And I think back when, it, when Vertigo was first released, it was more about the critics trying to see this as just a silly story that had no basis in any logical storytelling. And they were missing the whole point of like the emotions of the characters. Some critics got it, like New York Times actually saw it for what it was. It was another, I think, I forgot what pu a publication it was, but another, another critic saw it for what it was. But I think the majority of the critics at the time saw it more as, oh, this is just some silly story. And they didn't really look deeper than that because with Hitchcock, it's not about telling a logical story. It's about sucking you into the story, into the characters and uh, giving you like an unforgettable experience. Yeah, and to circle back on your point about how it was kind of ignored by its contemporaries, um, it's it's interesting because for, uh, and we talked about this a little bit on the Citizen Kane episode, uh, Citizen Kane, for years, dominated the the top of the list of the, uh, the sight and sound poll for the greatest films of all time. And for those of you who don't know what the sight and sound poll is, uh, sight and sound is a, a British film magazine uh, that I think is uh, published by the British Film Institute. And every ten years, I think it is, they poll the uh you know the, the industry like directors writers actors uh journalists things like that um to you know poll them to find out what the greatest film of all time is uh, and for years and years and years citizen kane was always number one and vertigo actually didn't even make the top 100 until 1982 so it took almost 30 years before the general kind of film going public you know the film the cinephiles even started to kind of notice it uh, and then just recently, the most recent poll in 2012, it actually did beat Citizen Kane to be number one. Which I find very interesting. And it, it's weird because, I mean, personally, I wouldn't rank it above Citizen Kane. But that's just personal taste. Because the thing is, I mean, I say that, but I can't really tell you why. You know, I can't really just say, oh, Citizen Kane's a better film. But, you know, you got to give examples. And for me, it's, it's just more a subjective thing. It's personal taste. I put Citizen Kane over Vertigo. You know, it, it, yeah, but it's interesting because, so I was thinking about that, because, you know, at, when you get to, like, masterpieces at this point, like, it, you, and you start arguing, well, Citizen Kane better than Casablanca, is the is the Godfather better than Vertigo, is the Godfather 2 better than Godfather 1, things like that, then, then you're starting to get into personal taste, because when you have kind of perfect films, it's kind of hard to just say, no, this is clearly the best one, you know? Exactly. I think it, then it just really does just come down to personal taste. And I think when it comes to Vertigo and uh, Citizen Kane, if you're comparing the two, first of all, they're completely different movies, completely right. different genres, completely different you know styles, everything. Um, but in addition to all that, um, you know, Citizen Kane might you might kind of technically say it's the most technical uh, on a technical level the better film. But I think I might want to watch Vertigo more than I would want to watch Citizen Kane. Like, if I had a choice between the two it's to sit down, I might want to watch Vertigo first. Okay. I mean, fair enough. But for me, on that front, it's equally. Like, I'd, I'd watch Vertigo. I'd watch Citizen Kane, you know, on, on a whim. You know, and I wouldn't really want, want to watch one over the other. You know, they're both excellent films, so. Yeah. Uh, and we'll get to that. But, you know, the other thing I kind of want to talk about at it, its place in history is that um, this is kind of... Vertigo is kind of right in the middle 
of this epic Hitchcock run. Uh, from nineteen fifty, uh, from nineteen fifty one through nineteen sixty three. That's right. This is, I mean, he had a, some other movies in between here, but I'm just going to name you the titles that he released in these thirteen years, and it's just going to blow your mind. So you had Strangers on a Train, mm-hmm. Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, and The Birds. In the span of thirteen years, those are all legitimate classics. Absolutely. It's it's funny you mentioned uh well Dial M for Murder, I actually have the three D Blu-ray, which I still yet to watch. I'm very anxious to watch that. I just haven't had the time. Now is it, I, do you have to have a three D player or is it the, or is it do the thing with the where you can put on the glasses? No, no, it have, it's the the Blu-ray three D, so you have to have the three D player. Oh see I don't have a three D player. Uh, but the birds though, I actually just got a poster, a Mondo poster of the birds that I absolutely love. I don't know if I've showed it to you. I but you I have. have my Psycho poster up that's from Mondo that I've been meaning to change. I've been up for a few months. I like to change every couple months or so. So thank you for reminding me I gotta put up my birds poster. Well, there yeah. you go. But yeah, I mean, that's an epic run. I mean, just... I, I mean, not just that, but I mean, consecutively with uh, Vertigo, North Bay, Northwest, and Psycho, just by themselves, 58, 59, and 60. Just, I mean... It's unheard of. The only other filmmaker I can think of that had kind of an epic run like that in a short period of time is Spielberg in the late 70s and early 80s when he did Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders and E.T. E.T., yep. You know, uh, so, like, I mean, that's the only other kind of thing I can think of that kind of almost... And someone can, you know, I'm sure someone else is going to email me and say, no, actually, this is... But, I mean, just from pop culture classics, that's such an epic run. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, I mean, it's Hitchcock, man. What, what do you expect? Yeah. Um, so, so just so for those of you who aren't familiar with Vertigo, and and you should, by the way, before we kind of go deep into this, uh, this podcast goes completely every every episode we go into spoilers. So if you haven't never watched the film, we recommend you do not listen to this before you watch the film. Yeah, this, this is, is one where you really should go watch it. Yeah, first. Th- yeah. this podcast is meant is meant to be a companion piece of the film. You should always watch the film before you uh, before you. Um, Listen to the podcast. That's why at the very end of the uh, show, we always tell you what the next movie will be so you have a chance to watch it. Um, but just a quick – and we can go into a, a kind of a deeper plot description. Uh, but uh, just just reading the IMDB uh, plot description, this is uh, about a San Francisco detective suffering from acrophobia, investigating the strange activities of an old friend's wife, all the while becoming dangerously obsessed with her. And when you when you hear that plot description and you and you've seen the movie – yeah, that's what it's about, but it's but when you think about how how the movie what the movie is, it's about so much more than that. Yeah, that's the thing about that movie, man, because it's that first hour and a half where he's basically laying down the story about you know a retired detective who's following this woman who thinks she's possessed. You find out that's all BS at the at, by the by, after an hour of the film. When you get to the the second half, you find out that whole first act that he set up is all bs now you get the real story and that's what's kind of interesting about this film is like he's laying down this story this backstory and you know you're watching it unfold and then you find out you know an hour 10 hour 15 minutes in it meant nothing kind of because that's not what the story really is about it's about the, it's this elaborate murder plot but you don't get the juice of that until you, the movie's almost over, which is kind of brilliant. It's it's kind of ballsy too. I mean, yeah. I mean, people point to um, Psycho as the first time he kind of 
change gears on you halfway through the movie. Um, and, and yeah, that's a little more. I think that's a little. Psycho's probably more drastic. But I mean, this is pretty ballsy to just be like. I'd, I don't. I even think it's farther than halfway. I think you find out maybe three quarters of the way through the movie, where you're just like, "By the way, here's what's really happening," and then you, and you still have like twenty or thirty minutes left. Where you're, where you're thinking to yourself, "All right, what? How? What's going to happen from this point?" At uh, this point, the audience is just confused. It's yeah. like because you see at, at that point when Judy first shows up, she looks like Kim Novak. Now you're watching this for the first time. She looks like Kim Novak. You can absolutely tell that's Kim Novak. So she's playing somebody else. So now at this point, you're confused. Like, what the hell's going on here? This is obviously, you know, we know Kim Novak is playing this other character. So what's her relation to Madeline Elster? And you find out they're the same person and you're like, it just blows your mind. You know, that's just awesome. Yeah, it's I mean, that's when you get the that's when you start. That's when you really start getting to the far fetched stuff. But uh, but it's it's so rewarding. uh, uh, it's just a, such an awarding experience after that point. Um, but before we delve too, de- too deep into it, so this is our first Hitchcock movie that we're, we're going to be discussing. I'm sure we're going to discuss a good portion of his filmography on, on this podcast. But just out of curiosity, what is your favorite Hitchcock movie? Right now, actually, there, there's, a, there's a couple. Psycho is my personal favorite. Birds is one of my personal favorites. But... Foreign correspondence, another favorite of mine. That's oh. not, not one that's on a lot of people's lists. That's but, uh, a good recently, one, and no one ever talks about that one. Exactly. I recently discovered it because I have the Criterion version. I've been collecting all of his films like what, that aren't on the set. Like I have Thailand for Murder, 39 Steps, Foreign Correspondent, and that one I absolutely love. That, that's such a great film that nobody talks about. You're absolutely right. 39 Steps is also a good one. I have the Criterion for that one as well. Um, foreign Correspondent is – was that his first Hollywood movie, or was that right before his first Hollywood movie? I think it was right before, but don't quote me on that. Did he do Rebecca right after that, maybe? I don't remember. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Uh, anyway, yeah, so, uh, hey, 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 you're a, you're a Newark guy, so so you, 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 I'm sure you've been to some Broadway shows, right? Have you ever been to Sleep No More? I have not. Do you know what Sleep No not. More is? No, I actually, I need you to enlighten me. So Sleep No More is this... Uh, it's not on Broadway, but it's this production where it's not a you don't go in and sit in a theater and watch a play. You it's an immersive experience. You go to a building, and the theater, quote unquote, is the entire building, and you just freely walk up and down the entire place. So there's elevators, there's stairs, and you just walk and you roam around, and you and you, and you wear like these eyes wide shut style masks. No God. <laughs> uh, so that and and then you just and then there are actors roaming around, and you know they're actors because they're not wearing masks, and there's no actual dialogue, but they're acting out scenes in front of you, and then you choose which actor you want to find follow and which storyline you want to follow, and they just act everything out in front of you. The reason I'm is bringing, there an eyes wide shut orgy storyline that I can follow? There's not necessarily I, an. <laughs> there's not necessarily an orgy, but there's there's a naked rave sequence you can find. Really, and it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. It's um, because one. So and I'll get to how it ties into Hitchcock in a second. But a lot of the, there are a lot of different storylines going around that kind of that are kind of interconnect and some don't interconnect. But you know, some of the char- It's almost kind of like a Tarantino movie where you see one character interact with another, but then you see that other character in something else doing something completely different. Um, but it's you know, it's really cool. But in the the, the one of the sequences is clearly kind of based on Macbeth, and then there is a 
um, interpretation of the the three witches scene in Macbeth, uh, <laughs> and it's basically a naked orgy. Um, but Look at the that. the uh, the tie into Hitchcock is there's a lot of references to the movie Rebecca. Uh, there's lots of, uh, uh, and with that, they, they mentioned Manderley a lot, which if you've seen Rebecca is the, the, uh, the name of the, the mansion in, in, in Rebecca, but also there's, there's, there's references to vertigo as, as well as music from vertigo. So the, 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 the actors don't talk, but it's just, there's a soundtrack all over it. And you hear that vertical theme all the time. So I it's it's kind of pricey and it's certainly a unique kind of thing, but if you ever have the opportunity to go to see Sleep No More uh and you like Hitchcock, I would recommend it. It's a really unique experience. Yeah, sounds sounds freaking interesting. I definitely got to check that but out. But there's definitely vertigo uh vertigo theme to it. There's it's definitely in there. Um but uh coming back to Vertigo. Um Vertigo is definitely I think is maybe my number 2 favorite Hitchcock. Uh but right now my my favorite Hitchcock of all time is, has always been Rear Window. Rear, Rear Window That's a good one. Rear yeah. Window is my favorite. And no and, and it's I think it's usually like number 4 or 5 for other people, but I just love the fact that it's a self-contained story in one location. And I think yeah. that the way that it ramps up the drama is um uh, is really good. And, and I and I just uh, we're going to talk about it at some point on this show. But that's my favorite. Uh, but Vertigo, strong, strong number two. Um, so let's go into a little bit of the history of Vertigo. Uh, it was based on a novel by uh, Pierre, and I'm going to butcher these names: Pierre Boileau and Thomas Nars Narsjack. Close enough. Uh, who, <laughs> Better than I pronounce. Uh, who wrote a book called uh, "From Among the Dead," which Vertigo is based on? They also wrote the story to uh, Diabolique. Have you ever seen yes. that film? Yes, that's a great we, we, film. We, I hope that's in the in the Ram. It's it's in there. It's in there. We'll, okay. we'll get to it at some point. It's a great horror film slash ghost story but, slash but, mystery. But the original, not the remake, right? No, 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 not the remake. I think with the, who's in the remake? Sharon Stone, Chaz <laughs> Palminteri. Yes. <laughs> No, Spalding it's not. Gray. <laughs> it's absolutely not that one. It's the original French version. Uh, I, I still think the the image, and I'm, we're not going to give it away, but the image of the guy coming out of the tub at the end is is still yes. super scary. Yeah. Um, but they wrote that story. They also wrote From Among the Dead, which what Vertigo is based on. Um, and just a couple little trivia points uh, is that uh, originally this film wasn't supposed to be Kim Novak. It was supposed to be Vera Miles. Yes, uh, that's correct. Who was uh, the heroine in Psycho, eventually. Um, or one of the heroines in Psycho. Uh, but she ended up getting pregnant, and uh, Kim Novak was cast. Uh, I think, you know, happy happy accident there. Good coincidence. Cool yeah, good good decision. Yeah, because it, it was a – it's probably her most iconic role. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that's my little bit of trivia there. But um, – do you want to go into kind of the, some of the plot details? Okay. Well, um, so the thing that really gets the whole thing going, and that's the opening scene. And I remember watching the uh, – I, I rewatched the film with the, the William Freakin's commentary, which is on the, uh, on the Blu-ray, on the uh, Masterpiece Collection set. And he talks about this opening scene where he says that – this is – I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically said the whole opening scene is a metaphor for Scotty's journey throughout the film because the way he's just dangling off of those stairs or whatever he is and he's you know seeing the view and he gets his vertigo and he sees the guy, the cop, fall to his death, which kind of jumpstarts his whole, his whole fear. That is a metaphor for just the journey that Scotty goes through in the entire film because it's essentially what happens to him, but 
you know, you kind of get the whole thing in in a span of like a minute, which is which is interesting. Um, yeah. what, what I love about that scene is that it's come. It, the only thing it's really there to do is to set. up I mean, yeah, yeah, it, it is that kind of. Uh, you're right. I like the like what you said there about how it's kind of a metaphor for the whole film. But what I think is kind of amusing about the plot of that scene is that it's almost irrelevant to the rest of the movie. Exactly. So, so I mean, you, yes, you get the the whole thing of the, the the cop falling and him getting the the realizing he has the acrophobia, but you you, you don't really find out how he gets down from there. <laughs> you don't find out what happens to the criminal he was chasing or why he was oh, even chasing the criminal. To exactly. Begin with. It's completely irrelevant. It just he's chasing a criminal. The criminal gets away, and oh well. We're not really following that. Story. Yeah, that's that's not what this is about. <laughs> yeah, it's so like it, it starts off with something that you think that you're gonna go one way, and it just is like, nope, we're not doing that. We're sticking with this. Uh, yep, and uh, that I mean that's just how Hitchcock or like I said earlier. I mean, other filmmakers, I guess more 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 of today's filmmakers, they would probably want to give you a whole backstory on the criminal, <laughs> even if it is irrelevant to the plot. They want to. Give Okay, he's being chased because he killed a guy, and he came he came from a, like a bad upbringing. You know, they, they want to give you all these details, and then for the story you're telling, it's just not relevant. And at least Hitchcock realized that, you know. Yeah, um, and you know, I forgot to ask you, how did you first uh, uh, watch the? How did you first experience Vertigo? This was uh, well, I had already got into film by this time, and this was actually through film school. I we watched the. Uh, we watched the first. Well, we watched the scene at the bell tower when uh when Madeline goes up the first time, and uh, he they were showing us like the vertigo effect mm-hmm. as part of like a special effects course that I was uh that I was taking, and then uh I, I only saw that one scene, and then I actually went back on my own to go watch Vertigo. Like I think I rented it or I did something. I I know I had watched it before I bought the Hitchcock set. So I, I must have found it on Turner Classics, but I did watch it beforehand. But that was I was first introduced to film school when they were showing the scene where they used the vertigo effect in the in the tower. So uh, okay, I, I watched it in film school the first time too, and it was uh, it kind of blew my mind, uh, especially when you get to the um, the more obsessive quality of it later in the film. Yeah, where... I mean, it get, it, and, and by that point it gets re- it's it's ridiculous. You you already you you sat through this whole thing, and then it, when you get to that point, it's like. You know, this is so far-fetched, so ridiculous, but I'm having fun. And that's what it's about in the end, you know. You're having fun watching the movie, and you're getting to – you're seeing these characters that have such an emotional range and that are clearly, clearly showing, you know, the themes of the film, obsession and guilt. And you see how they're all encapsulated, and not just Scotty, but in Judy slash Madeline as well. Right. Um yeah, and, and we're we're gonna get we're gonna move on and, and get to that, those points in, in just a moment. So a, after he, uh, after he, you know, uh, after the opening scene, which eventually, which you eventually realize doesn't really matter, <laughs> other than other than establishing that he has an acrophobia. Uh, you, you see, you, you see him. He's hanging out with Midge, who's a former fiance. They kind of make make a point to show you that he's just hanging out with his former girlfriend. Right. Um, and you know, he does as you mentioned in your little uh, opening introduction. There, he. It's it kind of sets up the plot of the it sets up the plot of the movie. He says, "I have a uh, agoraphobia. I keep trying to call it agoraphobia, but it's acrophobia. <laughs> yeah. Agoraphobia is think is wide open spaces that you don't like. It's acrophobia. Uh, that's the fear heights. Um, right. So he's got the acrophobia. Uh, they set up the the fact that um, 
uh, Elstar is a uh, is um has contacted him uh, for, for some sort of uh, he wants to meet up with him. Uh, he and then he tries, as you said, tries to kind of walk up and up those little stairs and just try to it's like it's like a little step stool or something, right? It's basically just kind of him in denial. Yeah, know? it's him in He's denial. Like, you know, I, I, I can get through this. Yeah, you know, just see, I'm, I'm going up this step, just a little at a time, going up this step. See, I'm at the top. You know, I look up, I look down. See, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> You know, and uh, it turns out he's really not fine because all he has to do is just look out the window and see how high he really is. And then the uh, acrophobia comes back to him. So, yeah. So uh, at this point, he realizes, you know, he, he, he then goes on uh, to meet this his, his old college uh, friend, Gavin Elster. Um, Gavin Elster is kind of like this. It's kind of vague, but he's kind of like this shipping magnet kind of guy. You know, he yeah. he. he, he you know it like maybe like an importer or some sort but like he has a line of ships or something and he's kind of uh he, he's kind of married into this business he he's clearly doesn't want to want anything to do with it anymore but he's you know uh he, he he that's the business he's in uh and he and he says to to Scotty uh John Scotty Ferguson who's uh our lead played by Jimmy Stewart mm-hmm. the, the great Jimmy Stewart um he says to him that he believes his wife – he needs Scotty to follow his wife around, basically, because he believes his wife is possessed by a spirit. Um, and when he goes on to explain that is that he, he feels that she has kind of uh, – that there is a spirit that has come back from the dead and has possessed his wife because his wife goes off and, and takes long, long walks or long drives and then comes back and then she doesn't have any recollection of it. She sits by the pier for long periods of time, gazes at the Golden Great Bridge and doesn't have any recollection of these things. And she's, she's kind of revisiting these old steps. Uh, and that's kind of and, – and, and, you know, Scotty absolutely does not believe this, this story. But he's like – finally he's like – he's intrigued enough to try – to be like, all right, let me, let me see what's going on here. Right. Um, and then after that, he starts to follow his, his, this, uh, this, his woman around, uh, Madeline is her name. Uh, she, you know, and, and she starts going to these very cryptic places. He goes to a graveyard. He goes to uh, a museum where he sees the painting of Mad Carlotta, uh, who has this very tragic backstory, um, about how she, you know, kills herself or, you know, it's a very, you know, ghost story kind of past, uh, she goes to a place called the McKittrick Hotel, which, by the way, here's another one of those Sleep No More things. The Sleep No More play is in a building called the McKittrick Hotel. Oh. <laughs> so that's nice. so that, I'm telling you, it's again, it's a little pricey, but you you got to go at some now point. Now, about that hotel, okay, so about that set, I'm convinced, even though I've heard things, I've, I've heard that it is and I've heard that it isn't, but I'm convinced that that interior of the McKittrick is the same interior of the Bates mansion inside yeah it totally looks like the bates mansion right that's what i'm saying but i've heard things that i heard stories that it is and i've heard that it isn't so i'm not sure what to believe in no i absolutely believe it It looks just like it now is it i believe we're uh, not rear window vertigo is universal and psycho is universal so it's not out of the question that it's the same interior i mean people people reuse sets all the time back then they're both universal movies they didn't come out that far from each other 
Um, it just makes sense. And Psycho was trying to do things on the cheap. I mean, Psycho, uh, very notorious. You could tell. Yeah. <laughs> just Psych- watch the movie. Yeah. Psycho notoriously, like, you know, uh, it, it reused, um, and not what we're talking about Psycho here, but Psycho, uh, reused, like, people from the Alfred Hitchcock Presents show instead of a normal film crew to kind of save money on things. So they probably save money on sets by using pre existing ones like this one. Right. So, uh, I would not, I mean, this, it does look like the inside of the Bates Mansion. It looks exactly like it. That's what I'm saying. I, I'm convinced it is. Um, so anyway, he continues to follow her, and uh, you know he, he hears this Mad Carlotta story, uh, and and he you know that is the what is. So at this point in this in the film, you you only know what Jimmy Stewart knows. You only know what Scotty knows, and it it kind of it, it kind of plays off like a supernatural mystery, doesn't it? That and that's the thing. The that, first and time again, you see it. right? Kind of alluding to what I've been saying, but it's just. It's so inherent to, to this plot and to this just how this film was made. He takes kind of painstaking steps to provide this backstory. Okay, so Madeline is related to this Carlotta Valdez, and Carlotta Valdez, you know, was married to this rich guy that he she had his son, and you know, he took the daughter, and I'm sorry, not the son, the daughter. He took the daughter and he abandoned her, you know, so she committed suicide, and now you know, Carl Carlotta's spirit is now somehow in Madeline, so she now she wants to kill herself because she's 26 and Carlotta died at 26. So he really took steps to kind of establish his backstory to make it seem to the audience, oh, this is some sort of like, you know, this like ghost story, like this supernatural type of thing. And it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's That's not what it is at all. And again, that's, I don't know if people would find that frustrating, but I'm sure I, I love it. I love that whole aspect of it. You know, I, I don't find that frustrating because I like, you know, I when I was a kid, I used to like... Uh, uh, old Sherlock Holmes stories, and if you ever read the 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 book The Hound of the Baskervilles, that whole book reads like it's a supernatural mystery, and then at the end you find out exactly what's going on. It's not supernatural at all. So it, it, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like an old uh, see Sherlock that Holmes. swerves done right. This is not a Russo swerve. This is like swerves done the correct way. I think. Yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, um, it, it's a very. It, it does. It comes out of nowhere, but it doesn't really, you know, because the clues are there. But he does lead you on this kind of supernatural path so well that you kind of go along with it, even though it's not explicitly stated that it's a supernatural path. You right. Know? So you you are kind of fooled along with with uh, Scotty the whole time. Um, so. At one point, uh, when he finally, the way he finally kind of meets her is that she tries to, you know, quote unquote, kill herself uh, in in the San Francisco Bay until he saves her. Um, and one of the most like beautiful shots of the film when you see the the Golden Gate Bridge there on the bay. Yeah, and the thing is, is absolutely that, beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. The, gorgeous. A lot, a lot of the film, all, all all the exteriors of the film were shot on location uh, in San Francisco, which is something that you didn't do back then. Usually, most studio films were shot on a set, and you know, there's lots of sets in uh, that I'm sure were on a Hollywood soundstage, but the but all the but everything yeah, outside. Yes, like eighty so, percent of this film is on a set. Yeah, and if you know Al- uh, Alfred Hitchcock, you knew that he liked to film on sets because he liked to be able to control the scene, to control the lighting, control everything. So they would do exterior shots that I think last. I think they only did like thirteen days of exteriors, and then the rest of the time was all done on film sets. Like what he would do is like he would film the wide, the exterior as a wide shot, but then the close-ups. Like I didn't know this until I heard the commentary, but the close-ups 
were actually done in a studio, but the background was a background projection. So, like, you would see the wide shot, and it would be a real exterior shot. But then when you got the close-up of, like, Jimmy Stewart or of Kim Novak, the background would actually be a projection of the exterior location, which is interesting. Now that I watched it, watched it back again with that in mind, now it looks fake. But the first time, first couple of times I saw it, I didn't notice it. Like, it was just seamless. Yeah, you can catch it now. But in but in when you're watching it though you kind of do get lost and kind of exactly don't, you don't really uh, you don't really notice it and but but the exteriors that they do shoot are do such a good job of establishing the city so that you absolutely feel like you are in this San Francisco so um, it, it, again it's very rare for them to do even shoot any. Uh, sort of B-roll exteriors back in the day, but uh, it, the fact that they even did that was kind of not, not very common. But uh, the how they used it was very effective, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, so after after he saves her, um, they kind of start a, a friendship slash relationship uh, where even though she's clearly a married woman, uh, or so we think, uh, she he clearly starts to fall in love with her, and they have. I mean, as much of an affair as that you can have in a 1958 movie. You know? Yeah, uh, Hitchcock, you know, he, he knows when he's telling the story, you know, this is a very illicit relationship. This is very sinful, you know, but he, he can only show so much of it. Well, I mean, think know? about it. He did save her. He, he saved her from the bay, takes her back to her to his apartment, not the hospital, by the way. Takes us back to her his apartment, and the next time we see her, she is naked under covers. So who yes, took off those? Which is clothes? a great shot, by the way. Yeah, who took off those clothes? You know what I mean? That's very, very uh, uh, controversial. I don't know if it was controversial at the time, but it, but I can imagine the kind of uh, uh, the eyebrows it raised back then. And, and the brilliance of all that too. And I noticed this right away, but I haven't really read. I haven't really seen like people reference it except for like one tiny little excerpt of an article I was reading while researching. So his apartment in the background, you can see, you know, the famous Coit Tower that's in a, that's in San Francisco. As soon as I saw that, just the way it was just there in the background, it looked like a phallic symbol, especially with the way he's talking to, to Madeline. They're getting to know each other. And you can tell that like, his obsession is starting to grow with her. Right. And you have that Coit Tower, which looks, is a very much a phallic symbol in the background. And Hitchcock did mention that he did intend that to be there as a phallic symbol. And even just from the name Coit Tower, you know, Coit, Coitus is like, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's not even subtle. But uh, I'm, uh, that was one of the first things that I noticed about that scene. I'm, I'm shocked, shocked that Hitchcock would have a phallic symbol in this film. <laughs> <laughs> just, just as I'm shocked that the lead actress here is a blonde. Blonde, uh, right? I knew uh, you were going to uh, go there. Curvy, curvy blonde. Um, that's just shocking to me. Anyway, um, but yeah, that that's absolutely true. But it's uh, funny, is but nobody mentions the Coit Tower being there for that reason. You know, they mentioned it as like one of the exteriors that they shot, but never in that light. And I only saw like one little extra where Hitchcock claims to have said that it was there for that reason. But that's it. Like nobody brings it up. That's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> I mean, this is a theme with Hitchcock and and Jimmy Stewart because I mean, five years earlier when they did a Rear Window. That yeah. that telephoto lens. <laughs> I got news for you, folks. That telephoto lens is a penis. That's yeah. exactly what it is. And guess what? Is Jimmy Stewart again obsessed with something? Uh, you know, it's a it's a theme with Hitchcock and Jimmy Stewart. I think. Um, Who did it more, Kubrick or Hitchcock? I don't know. Hey, as a, as in a little aside, as a little aside, have you? And this is a movie we'll we'll eventually get to. 
Have you ever seen the documentary Room Thirty Room Two Thirty Seven on the show? No, I have not, but I have a mean to watch it. Okay, this this has nothing to do with Vertigo, but we're, since we're talking a little bit about Kubrick, you brought up Kubrick. It is kind of a crazy film. Uh, it's basically for those of you who haven't seen it, um, it's basically it's a documentary, but there's never any. You know, there's no talking heads on it, right? So there's no people, like, on camera talking about anything. The entire – all the images you ever see are is just The Shining and people talking over scenes from The Shining and talking about – and just different people talking about their theories. And they're all varied. It's not, like, one theory for each one. It's, like, there's just all these different theories about what it means. And some of them are, like, okay, I can see that. And some of them are, like, okay, you're crazy. You are <laughs> nuts. That does not mean what you think it means. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, we won't know because Kubrick was always all very, you know, tight-lipped about these sort of things, and and he 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 was also kind of a practical joker with the audience, where he just put stuff in there to mess with people. But uh, it, it's just kind of, the way people take it. You got to watch. I think it's on Netflix, so you might want to check it out. But definitely, uh, it's a little bit of a side back back to the Vertigo real quick. Um, but I it just it just reminded me of that. But yeah. but that's a great scene though in the apartment. They're getting to know each other, and you can tell like. You know his obsession with her goes from like you know um you know what's going on with this uh with this girl she's you know what's what's why is she acting so weird to you know I kind of want to you know bang this girl so I mean he he undressed her he clearly undressed her because she's in his bed naked there's no other way to explain that other than he took off her clothes and put her in his bed so <laughs> I I mean it's it's. And the fact that he doesn't take her to a he gives I forget the the excuse he gives her, but it's kind of a flimsy excuse as to why he yeah. didn't give her to take her to the hospital. It's so he, the the obsession has started. The obsession started. The obsession started. Yeah, I think even before that, because he was already because there's a scene after he has followed her around for a little while. There's a scene of him talking mm-hmm. with Elster before he follows mm-hmm. her to the Golden Gate Bridge, and that's when you can start to see the gears kind of turning of him starting to get a lot more invested in her. So, by the time she jumps into the water, he's already he's already in, man. Him, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you could probably say that him jumping into the water is like him jumping into this this obsession full you know, full on. Because, there you go. Because it's uh, he's in. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so they start this kind of relationship, and I mean that's the best way to call it. It's a relationship, um, and. You know, you get a couple more scenes of of him, you know, him getting to know her and and him kind of getting becoming more and more obsessed with her as she kind of speaks cryptically, kind of selling the supernatural angle of it all. Uh, there's a great scene in the uh, uh, in the redwood forest, or you know, where, where they're talking about you know, the, you know, this is, she's pointing to the rings and this is where I was born and this is where I'm going to die, you know, things like that. Um, and then they eventually get to this cathedral where where she's being drawn to. Uh, and she, I don't know how to explain it. So the, the, she basically leads him there. Right. She clearly leads him there. Yeah. She say, you know, I, I, I had a dream that I was in this place and it turns out it's the, it's the mission with the, with the, with the tower. Yes. With the bell tower. So, uh, she ends up leading him there because he wants to show her that it's not a dream, you know, that this is real and this is what she was imagining. So. Right. Um, and she leads him there and she, uh, Again, speaking cryptically, and tells him, you know, uh, and and tells her that she she cares for him, and then all this stuff, and then before she runs up to the to the bell tower, 
knowing full well that he's not going to follow her. Or if he tries to follow her, it's gonna his acrophobia is going to kick in. And is this the first time in the film where we see the the vertigo shot? Well, actually, you see it in the opening scene when he's Did hanging off. The opening scene. Yes. Okay. But this is like the. It wasn't really like focused on. When you get to this scene, when he's first climbing the bell tower, then you really see it. But it did kind of tease it kind of in that opening scene. Yeah. So this is so so you know he tries to follow her up the bell tower, and then his acrophobia kicks in, and uh, you get the vertigo shot. So the vertigo shot is basically and is basically when the character stays in the foreground the same size, but the the background drastically shifts, right? Yeah. Uh, and and they did that with with the the stairs in this shot. So the uh-huh. you see like the the kind of the the stairs closest to you, they don't change in size or shape, but everything behind it kind of zooms back. And the way they they accomplish this is such a neat filmmaker trick. Uh, is you do a forward zoom in on your subject while at the same time pulling the camera back. So it kind of gives you that that effect, which is awesome. And the other time that I, the other, I mean, they, they use it again in the in the film. Uh, but the other film, I think, used it. So, I mean, you see people copycat it all the time. But my favorite copycat is uh, in Jaws. Whatever you see, Brody on the beach, uh-huh. and he realizes the 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 you know that there's another shark attack. Whenever there's you know all these hundreds of people in the water, and he at that moment when he realized that you get the vertigo shot. That's a that's I think my second favorite use of the vertigo shot. That's a good one. Yeah. So I think he, he used it in Marnie too, right? He may have. I you know what I have not. I've only seen Marnie once. I think he used it in Marnie also. I'm trying to remember. I've only seen it like twice. So, uh, only, but that was a long time ago. I've only seen Marnie once, and it's one of those. It's not my favorite Hitchcock movie. Like it's not even in my top twenty. So I I have to. It's a movie I have to revisit because I think maybe I just didn't get it. You okay. know, I I, it may, I think I I feel like with with Hitchcock. You have to give him. You have to give him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> so yeah. I, I have to go back to that one. I just because I, yeah. I, it just did not connect with me. So I, I think I need to revisit that. Well, my favorite one was The Simpsons. You know, I, I really shouldn't have to say that at this point, <laughs> but they did a, they did a great homage to that, and they used the uh, Vertigo effect. So that was they actually did it a couple times. So. Oh, I'm, I mean, the, the guys over in The Simpsons are a bunch of movie nerds. I mean, that's, exactly, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that, that's that's obvious. Um. So he he can't follow her up the stairs, and then all of a sudden he sees a body, fly, you know, dressed in the same you know outfit that she's in, uh, fall you know fall from the sky uh, because clear that you know apparently she has jumped to her death just like Carlotta uh, did so many centuries ago. So at this point, you know, he, there's a kind of a tribunal or a court hearing where they kind of determine. Okay, it's not his fault. This is, you know, this is more or less of a. Uh, he didn't murder this woman, but he was certainly not. You know, he just didn't save her, basically, and uh, he's kind of let off the hook. But he's cl- at this point now. His obsession has been replaced with guilt, uh, and because he thinks he's guilty for the death of this woman, and now he's also feeling guilty for the death of the cop at the beginning of the movie. So now he's he's just all obsession and guilt in this film. So and then at this point, you know, the Gail's on top of Gail. He just goes into a catatonic state, and he's basically I don't know if he puts himself in, but like 
he ends up in like in a sanitarium kind of right that's what it is right yeah and i think i mean the thing is like in the 1950s you know mental health practices probably aren't what they are today you know so someone someone going through depression like just you know standard depression nowadays uh, would probably be put in a in a, in a mental institution like <laughs> yeah. that you know but uh it's basically what he is he's in a psychiatric hospital uh because he's completely he's had a breakdown um and then this, the film kind of fast forwards a little bit to after he gets out and um he finds a new woman uh he finds a woman named judy that looks just like madeline except she has mm-hmm. brown hair uh but she looks just like her and remember in this scene where he first sees judy she's wearing a green dress and now go back to the scene where he first saw madeline at ernie's restaurant she was wearing a green dress so, so this whole color theme they have here of green for madeline slash judy you know, it becomes obvious now. And it kind of points you in that direction, too, where, like, okay, you know, there's a color theme going on. Like, if you're really paying attention, there's a color theme going on here between these two characters. Are they the same person, you know? Right, because at this point, the movie has yet to explain anything. At this exactly. point... At now this you're getting confused. At this point, the film has shown you, uh, if you take it with a grain of salt and, and at its face value... He fell in love with a woman who was obsessed with this Carlotta woman, and she killed herself because apparently was possessed by her spirit, right? Yes. And now, and this woman also supposedly, you know, bore some sort of resemblance to Carlotta. And now he sees another woman that looks just like Madeline, looks just like her. And the audience is now like, okay, what is going on? Why does he keep seeing the same woman over and over again? So... Now the audience is probably confused and probably buying into the supernatural. The, the the audience at this point is probably, at least I was the first time I watched it, I was like, okay, there's something clearly supernatural here. Right. Um, so he follows this woman around. Her name is Judy. Uh, he follows her to her apartment, kind of like a creep, to be honest. Yeah. He follows her to her apartment. And on top of that, she agrees to go out with him after all of that. So that that's where the, like, the logic starts going like, uh, you know. She yeah, probably he, would have already called the cops by then. Yeah, because there's a strange guy that you know shows up at your door and starts saying, you know, you look like, just like this old woman, this woman that I used to know, and I blah blah blah. And then I want to take you out to dinner, and she says, "Okay, fine." It's and then he leaves, and then like once you like once you get to this point in the film, you have to throw all logic out the window because yeah. it's like you know, right? It seems like right. I don't know how much time it has to live. It seems like right after he gets out, he see, meets her. You know, and then that the whole like story kind of starts coming together again. Like, but you know, in real life, that that wouldn't happen so soon. You know, unless you know, it just it just wouldn't make sense. Right. Um. <laughs> so n- now, now the movie, as you said, everything goes out the window. Logic goes out the window, and we get an explanation as to what the hell has been going on. And this is brilliant because <laughs> it's like Hitchcock knows at this point the audience is confused at what's going on. So. He has Kim Novak as Judy look at the camera dead on as if she's looking at us and like, okay, this is what this is what the real story is. And then you get the flashback that she goes up the tower and it's actually Gavin Elston with his dead wife already up there, and it's her body that Scotty sees falling off the building. Now, what 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 happened was is that Gavin has uh, Gavin Elster has hired Judy. 
to to perpetrate this plot. Um, I must, you know, I think I forget. They what were it, seeing each other. I think though they, they were All seeing right. each other, but he was also trying to kill off his wife so he could kind of be rid of this whole uh, family business and kind of move on and, and whatever. You know, he, it was. And he made it seem like a suicide. And the reason they know they could get away with it because they knew Scotty wasn't going to go up to the bell tower because of his agoraphobia, and that's why Gavin Gavin recruited him. And and he because he knew he'd never find out about it up there. Yeah, but then the alibi too is that that uh, Judy and Gavin hid in the in the tower they until like the cops left with the body. Right. Which if this was real life, the cops would have checked every inch of that tower right. and would have found them. So. But hey, whatever. <laughs> logic <laughs> again. Logic again out the window so that's what so and we find this out through a, a letter that she starts writing to scotty because and we also find out that she actually fell in love with him during their during that time so she actually is also kind of racked with guilt for putting this guy through this emotional trauma that he's been through uh because it's because i mean at this point scotty now we have the information and scotty still doesn't have it scotty thinks that he met a woman who was obsessed with the dead woman that became so obsessed with her that she just threw herself off of a bell tower and killed herself, and now, uh, you know, and be, and he thinks that it's his fault because uh, he he wasn't able to go up there and save her. And this is the second time that his agoraphobia has killed so has caused someone to die. So this guy is completely clinically depressed. He is completely broken down emotional state he's a mess of a man and she basically contributed to that so she also feels guilty for this um but she eventually kind of you know does not uh does not uh you know tell him the truth at that moment and then she starts you know having a relationship with scotty but scotty obsessed with this with madeline starts to change judy to look more like madeline because judy has brown hair and he wants her to have hair like madeline who was a blonde and then he starts buying the same clothes that she used to wear and the same shoes that she used to wear and then it get cut her hair in the same way and all these things and it's kind of once because we know what's going on we know we know things on two levels we know a what he's doing to try and get her because he's obsessed with madeline but b that she also knows what he's doing because she was Madeline. Exactly. <laughs> and she's kind of jealous of herself because she knows what, like, I mean, in, in any other situation, one would be jealous. But she's also jealous because he, she knows exactly what he's doing because it's her that was doing it before. And at this point, too, you got to remember now she's becoming obsessed with doing whatever whatever Scotty tells her so that. He can love her. He can start loving her for for who she really is. So she goes along with it because now she's obsessed with kind of winning over Scotty in that way as well. Exactly. So by the way, I, I just want to say I, I skipped forward to I had the DVD on in the background, and I skipped forward to the point where he meets Judy, and there's roughly thirty five minutes left in the movie. So the and the movie is about. Uh, two hours long. So about three quarters of the way through, they throw the whole plot out the window, and and that's whenever they're like, okay, everything you've been following, forget it because this is what's really happening, which is so ballsy to me. Oh, I, I, and I think if I remember correctly, I, in the original book, this whole exposition about like who Judy really is doesn't come to like the end of the book. 
mm-hmm. but Hitchcock elected to do it earlier because he kind of wanted to sh- he wanted the audience to be left wondering, okay, so what's going to happen now? So that was kind of a good move on his part because he reveals it like pretty much a little over halfway through, and then we kind of see the aftermath, what happens because of that, which yeah. is awesome. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what if you would have saved that bit to the end. But I think cinematically it wouldn't have worked to just all of a sudden explain everything right at the very end. Yeah, uh, it, too much. I think by by picking it right here and then now, because it, it makes it more interesting because now the audience—that's what suspense is, right? When the audience knows something that the main characters don't know, so we know exactly what's happening now, and Jimmy Stewart still doesn't know, and that kind of builds the suspense. And there's no mystery anymore, but. It's now a just fascinating look at this man's breakdown in, in, in his obsession and forcing this woman to do what he wants her to do to look like Madeline. Exactly. And speaking of that, here's kind of a freaky theory I, I want to bring up because Friedkin brought this up in the commentary. And he said that in a way, especially the this second part of the film, becomes kind of and, – and not – you can even see it in the first part as well. The whole like – obsession that he has with her you can kind of see as a form of necrophilia and now not literally because that's disgusting but metaphorically think about it he becomes obsessed with this woman madeline who is now dead to him because he saw her fall so she's dead in his eyes at this point in the film he's dead he sees judy who looks just like madeline and as we just talked about He's now trying to dress her like Madeline. He's trying to make her into Madeline. So he's wants to, you know, he wants to make love to Madeline, who's now dead, and he's trying to make Judy that Madeline. So it's like it's it, when you really look at it in that sense, kind of metaphorically, it's 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 necrophilia. And I don't which think is that's fascinating. I don't think that's an accident. I think the Hitchcock knew exactly what he was doing there. And Hitchcock is just like the phallic symbol that's yeah. Clark Tower. That was intentional. Yeah, he Hitchcock. Nothing in a Hitchcock movie is by accident. Like, so if you see, if you were to notice ne- themes of necrophilia in a Hitchcock movie, that's there by intention because that's what Hitchcock did. And that's why he was the master. Um, I mean, to me, Hitchcock, probably my favorite director ever. Uh, but, and this is why, for things like that. Um, just things just to slip in casually, pretty much, the necrophilia into a movie without really slipping it in, but it's definitely <laughs> necrophilia. That that's that's such a that's such a, a wacky theory that it's at the same time fascinating while disgusting. You know, I don't think it's a theory. I think that's that's it. I think that's what it is. I don't think it's a theory. I think that's what it is. I only say it's a theory because I've only heard him mention. I haven't really read that anywhere. So I figured that was something that he came up with. No, I mean, and and folks, if you if you have the the DVD or the Blu-ray, listen to the Friedkin documentary. And for those of you who don't know who William Friedkin and he he's uh he's the director of. Many fantastic movies, but chief among them, uh, excuse me, the um, French Connection and The Exorcist. Absolutely, uh, both absolute classics that I'm sure we will get to at some point. On the the Ram will pick one day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, after after you know about twenty or thirty minutes of him forcing her into becoming Madeline, um, and her just going along with it, he she makes a mistake. Well, actually, it's right after it's right after he's finally um, satisfied with the transformation, where he, her hair is is done, 
Her and she, she and remember, the, just the way she comes out. I think she went into the bathroom to put the hair up. Yes. She comes out of the bathroom, bro, and she comes out in like this green mist of of like that looks like fog. Out of the fog, like rising from the dead, is Madeline Elster. And again, and, he, and he's finally satisfied. And again, the color green. Yep. Uh, and I think in this the 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 explanation of it being green is because there's a green neon light outside. But that's right. Yeah. But the uh, hotel sign is neon green. But she comes because she comes into this green again. Once green happens, like he that that's when Madeline makes her entrance, right? Um, and mm-hmm. that's when he finally finally falls. Like he finally has completed her, completed the transformation, uh, and they do a you know they 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 kiss and they do a cutaway where. They clearly had sex. I'm just saying it. <laughs> I mean, this is 1958, so they can't show up. But that's clearly what happened afterwards. Um, and then they show her getting ready to go out. Um, and she makes a mistake. She puts on a necklace that that's, only, and that's the MacGuffin right there. Yeah, that that only Madeline had. And that's when Scotty realizes what is happening. He realizes that okay, this isn't some weird coincidence. This isn't a spiritual thing. This actually is Madeline, and I've been played for a fool. And now I'm going to basically get revenge. Absolutely. And then at that point, you know, he start, You know, he takes her back to the mission where all of that happened. And at, and at this point, you know, we, we didn't really touch on, on the whole mirror theme. Like, there's mirrors throughout this whole film. And the mirrors, like, I think the first time you see a mirror is when he follows Madeline into the flower shop, and you see, like, him reflected on the mirror. Then the second time, you kind of see it when uh, when Judy, when he first meets Judy, and, he, and he's in the apartment, and, and not yeah, the apartment, the hotel, or whatever, and you kind of see both Judy and Scotty reflected in the mirror, kind of yeah, as a metaphor for their duality, for, the, for their character's duality. And then at this point here, right when he sees her put the necklace on, you see them both again in the mirror reflected, kind of like a uh, – as a way to crescendo the whole thing. Like, you know, okay, it finally hits him. He's been had, and he sees, you know, Madeline – you know, the reflection of Madeline kind of a representative of, you know, this, this whole thing that he's been had. And now on to that point also, when he takes her back to uh, to the mission at the end of the film, that's kind of also like uh, touching upon the mirror theme of like deja vu because, you know, you we revisit some of these settings in the film multiple times, kind of in, in a, in a, in a obsess- obsessive sort of way. And, uh, you know, we're seeing these settings again, especially now with the mission we're about to see at the end of the film. But we're seeing all these settings in a different light, like each time like there's a different mood for each for each visit. And, you know, the when we go back to the mission here. You know, it's the crescendo of, like, everything that's happened. You know, the obsession that Scotty has had and now the anger that Scotty has. Now, kind of, you visit, revisit the mission, but in a different way. Yeah. And because now this, because because he's obsessed in a different way now, it overtakes, his, he's able to conquer his acrophobia. And he basically drags her up to the mission, up to the top of that mission tower. Um drags her the whole way and then starts real and starts explaining i know what's going on i know what you did uh you know and then he basically explains to her what we already know um they take her to the top of the mission tower he uh you know she finally admits what's what's happened but then there's there happens to be a nun up there and the nun 
what she she scares her so much that she falls backwards and falls over the edge and falls to her death once again people keep falling and dying around scotty um uh and but you don't see a sun at first you see just a black shadow you see a black which shadow is supposed to be like the silhouette of death right it's supposed to be like the grim reaper the silhouette of yes. death right exactly uh and that's and it scares her to death she falls backwards and falls off the tower and dies and that's how the movie ends by the and way and then and, but that's the that's the shot though he's on the top of the tower he looks down at judy's body and he's conquered his vertigo he's conquered his acrophobia but at what price yeah exactly and that exactly and i, I want to make that point that's when he's finally able to look down when he is when when he has uh when the love of the love that he's been obsessed with falls down to her death and that's it that's vertigo so vertigo again um I have a couple discussion points I want to talk about. Uh, as we discussed, clearly a film about obsession and guilt. Uh, I mean, his Scotty throughout this entire film is almost unhinged. Uh, he he's someone who is not. He, he's so completely obsessed with Madeline, and then Judy as Madeline, um, and, and just so much was racked with guilt over the deaths of the, the police officer and Madeline, or what he thinks happened to Madeline. Um, that it drives the entire the, the the it's almost the MacGuffin of the movie is his obsession, right? And and it goes both ways. I mean, you have Scotty who becomes obsessed with this woman, you know, Madeline, Judy, whatever you want to call her at this point. You know, Judy falls in love with Scotty and she becomes obsessed with him. And then near the end of the film, you have Scotty becoming obsessed with turning Judy into Madeline, not realizing it that they're both the same person, right? Um. But it's it's probably the great. I mean, not that there's a lot of films about it. Uh, that's a big genre. But if you want to have a film that, that explores the the themes of obsession, this is the film to watch. And I, I I wonder. I you know I didn't research this, but I wonder how many you know uh, psychiatric you know analyses are of this film. I'm sure there's a lot out there. I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah. Um, so a couple of discussion points I want to talk about that, that I, I we definitely want to I definitely want to hit. Uh, we talked about the vertigo shot that this was, this was kind of invented here. Uh, the Bernard Herrmann's musical score, uh, probably to me my favorite musical score of of the Bernard Herrmann and Hitchcock collaborations. Like Psycho's the most iconic. I was going to say yeah, I kind of I personally I prefer Psycho. It's one, the most I iconic one, but yeah. this is my favorite one. Yeah, I, I I can see. I mean, it is a wonderful score. You know, it really like it, it is so iconic too. It, it is iconic. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's absolutely it's absolutely excellent. Just it's a great score. And they used a bit of it. They sampled it in the the 2011 film The Artist. Do you remember this? Well, I don't remember anything really about The Artist because I didn't like that movie. But uh... <laughs> I enjoyed The Artist, but uh, I actually have only seen it the one time, so, uh, right before the Oscars that year. But uh, I still did enjoy that movie. But uh, I'm not sure if you remember towards the end of the film whenever he's um when he's kind of down on his luck and he's contemplating suicide, uh, they, they play the vertical theme over that. Oh, that I, don't, I remember the scene. I don't remember that. Yeah. Like the, the vertigo. It's the vertical theme over that. The, the vertical love theme, I believe. Mm. Um, but yeah, that this, this is probably my favorite musical score of theirs. And they, they did a lot of good collaborations again. They also did the North by Northwest, which is also pretty good. Yes. Um, this is the fourth, uh, collaboration with, and I think the final collaboration with Jimmy Stewart and um, Alfred Hitchcock. They did Rope, 
uh, which is a great film, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Rear Window. Then this is the last film that they did together. And then after this, um, I believe he was supposed to, and I, I'm, someone might want to correct me, I think he was supposed to originally be in North by Northwest, but they replaced it with Cary Grant because Vertigo didn't perform well. So and Cary Grant was a much better, bigger uh, box office star. So I think that was more of a studio call to, to replace right. Jimmy Stewart with, with Cary Grant. And the funny thing about this, and I don't know if this is, is this legit or not, but I did read an article where they quoted Hitchcock in an interview, and he said that, uh, I mean, because the film, as far as box office, it kind of broke even. You mm-hmm. know, it, it didn't make much of a profit, but it was able to break even. And like we talked about earlier, the contemporary critics, you know, had mixed feelings on it. And Hitchcock has was quoted as saying that uh, he felt that Jimmy Stewart's casting was why it failed because – he was so much older than uh, than Kim Novak at that point, so he didn't think that you know he thought he was too old to be the leading man against her, you know, who was like 25, 26 at the time of filming. Mm-hmm. But but then in retrospect, when you have the film being reanalyzed in the eighties, you have people saying you know that Jimmy Stewart was the perfect. Yeah, I was uh, about to say to play that. It, it makes it it makes it better. It's a better um... and 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 they called it very ballsy casting at the time as well. Yeah. Oh, the, the it make yeah absolutely it makes the the themes of the movie a lot hit home a lot harder exactly because because he's a, the because of the age difference and then when you think about it too like you know at you know when you think Jimmy Stewart you think you know it's a wonderful life you kind of think of him in those roles where like he's like very warm hearted and like kind of you know like in every guy and here it it becomes kind of this that image of him becomes distorted which is why you would call that casting choice kind of ballsy and it works because of that. Because of the perception you have of Jimmy Stewart, the actor, as well. Right, because in the previous Hitchcock movies, uh, in Rope and The Man Who Knew Too Much, he's more of a hero. I mean, in Rope, he's he's kind of comes in, in the la- a little bit towards halfway through the movie to the last act. He's not really the main character, but he's he's the guy that kind of discovers what the what the mystery is or what the mystery is and kind of uncovers everything. In The Man Who Knew Too Much, he's more of like a traditional leading man hero. And in Rear Window, he's he's a, he's a leading man hero, but he's not traditional because he's bound. Uh, uh, bound to a wheelchair, but yeah, I mean Hitchcock still manages to mess. You know, again, like we talked about earlier with the phallic symbol of the of the the telescopic lens and everything. But um, he's still more of a he's he's definitely obsessed, but he's still more of a, a quote unquote hero in that film uh, because he's trying to uncover a murder, right? And this film, he's not any he's not a hero. He's he's an obsessed, broken, desperate man. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's what makes the casting of him ballsy, but at the same time brilliant. Yeah, and I believe, um, I mean, this is kind of right when Jimmy Stewart's career was starting to to kind of wind down a little bit as far as him being like a major box office attraction. I mean, he did some other things after this, uh, like The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a great movie, um, but he did some other things after this, but, you know, the 60s, weren't as kind of prolific as the 40s and 50s were for Jimmy Stewart. So this is this is kind of him towards the tail end of like the his most like his peak period. Right. Um oh, and I wrote this down in my notes and I I I should have said it while we were discussing the the plot points uh especially during the the Judy Madeline uh transformation. Uh and this is something I lifted directly out of the Friedkin commentary and it's such a perfect quote. And he says, in dressing her, he's really undressing her. Yes, that's, that's a great quote. And that's exactly what he's doing. That's absolutely exactly what he's doing. 
Yes, I, I actually wrote that down on my notes too, but I completely, I completely glossed over. You're absolutely right. That is an excellent, excellent quote, and it's it's true. That's exactly what's happening in that scene. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing because it's like with the whole thing with Hitchcock too. It's like it's less is more. That that was his motif, and you know, I mean, it's it's the fifties. You couldn't really show much anyway, but this was just the perfect metaphor. For that kind of like raunchy, you know, he's really trying to address her, you know. And, and just think about this for one second. Just think about this. This is an incredibly sexual movie. And you don't see one breast. You don't see one full frontal shot. You don't see any skin, really. The most skin you see is like the impression that Madeline is naked under uh, Jimmy Stewart's sheets. Yep. But that's it. And it, by that, like, she's just you just see her bare shoulders, basically. Yeah. But it but this movie is definitely about sex. Yep. It is absolutely a movie about sex. Uh, and, and this is the kind of stuff that Hitchcock did. And this is the kind of stuff that Hitchcock did with kind of – because the more I read about Hitchcock, the more I kind of would have wanted – I kind of want to meet – go back in time and meet him because he just seems like such – a smart. Well, well, make sure you wear a tie if you ever meet him. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes, I heard that story. Yes, yes, the, the Friedman <laughs> story. Uh, but he, he, um, he just seems like such a smartass, and I kind of yeah. love that. I kind just. It seems like almost all the films he did was like, let me see if I can get away with this. Let me just see if I can sneak this in there, just messing with people. I mean, my the most obvious one to me, the most obvious, like, oh man. Come on, Hitch. I know exactly what you just did there. Was at the very last shot of North by Northwest. Do you remember what the last shot yeah. of North by Northwest is? <laughs> That's a good one. Of the train going into the tunnel. Like, come on. Come on, bro. Hitch. <laughs> But I mean that's that's what Vertigo is. Vertigo is one is it's a very sexual movie and uh and yeah, in dressing her, he's really undressing her. That I wish we we would have mentioned that earlier, but we that's, mentioned that's it. A great line. We mentioned yeah. that's a great line. Um I wanna discuss also we talked we touched upon it a little bit. This movie was criminally ignored at the Academy Awards, and I just wanna go ahead and and, and just point out no best picture nomination for Vertigo, but you know what won that year? Tell me. I was actually about to look it up now, but go ahead. The movie called Gigi. Have you ever seen Gigi? Uh, no, I have not, but I've heard. I've I watched know, Gigi. It's a, it's a fine... Not Geely. No, not Geely. It's Gigi. Not Geely. Yeah. G-I-G-I. Gigi. Uh, it's a fine musical. If you've ever heard the song, Thank Heaven for Little Girls, it comes from this musical. Um, it's it's fine. It's not a great musical. It's it's fine. But that one best picture that year, Vertigo, not nominated. Uh Jimmy Stewart, not nominated for Best Actor, winner for Best Actor that year. Uh, David Niven in Separate Tables, which I've seen. Again, fine, but no Jimmy <laughs> Stewart. Um, best Actress in a Leading Role uh, went to I Want to Live for uh, Susan Hayward. I've seen, again, seen that film. It's okay. Um, but Kim Novak, not even nominated. and she abs- Kim Novak absolutely deserved a nomination for this movie. Oh, I agree with you. I definitely. Mean, I don't she know if you was, want to call was, her a leading role or supporting role, but she she definitely deserved nomination. She was possibly the best part of this movie, like as far as acting. You know, I mean, I'm not not saying anything from from Jimmy Stewart. Well, she He's had to boy. play two but different characters. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. Uh, no best director for uh, for Hitchcock. That went to again Vincent Minnelli for Gigi. Uh, no best screenplay. Um, no cinematography. That went to Gigi. Um, let's see what else. Costume design for Edith Head. She should have gotten something. Nope. 
Um, and uh, the score, Bernard Herman was not nominated for that either. Uh, that's that's nuts. That's and guess what else? Nuts. And guess who it went to? Gigi. Gigi, of course. That, that movie cleaned up that year for some reason. But Vertical wasn't even nominated for any of these. It was nominated for, as I said, art direction and sound. It was art direction yeah. and sound. Um, and which, yeah, good, but that's not what I think about when I think of Vertigo. I think of the well, music. I'm, I'm I think of the acting. Ni- I'm just glad to see that Nighty Night Bugs won Best Animated Short. So that, that's, that's, that's a good, that's a classic. So anyway. Night- sorry, oh, Nighty Night Bugs. That's a good movie. That's a good, that's a good sh- uh, short. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, not to get off track. Continue. I saw Nighty Night Bugs that one, and I was like, "Oh, I haven't seen that in ages, but it's awesome." <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those movies that, again, we we talked about it when we talked about it on our Citizen Kane episode. You know, when we talked about the Godfather on the Godfather episode, it was an instant classic. Everyone loved it, and it's still to this day an, uh, a classic film. And Citizen Kane again was not was very was pretty much ignored and there was a lot of pol- pol- politics behind that one um and then you know years later it was discovered to be this great film and same thing again with vertigo and citizen kane N- i mean it wasn't ignored for politics like citizen kane was but it was yeah. ignored because the the public didn't really accept it and the critics weren't over the moon about it some were but a lot of them weren't and it just kind of came and went. And back then, you know, you didn't have DVD and video. And if a movie left the theaters, it just left the theaters and you never saw it again until someone put it on TV years later, you know. So it had to get discovered again years and years later for people to appreciate it. And again, it just kind of – I, I do wonder – and we talked about this on Citizen Kane. I just wonder, are we going to – are we ever going to have that kind of era? Because – now, if a film dies in a theater, it pretty much goes right to on demand or DVD or Blu-ray or Netflix or whatever, and it it gets a second chance there. And sometimes people discover things there, but it's going to be a lot quicker. It's not going to take decades for someone to notice something, which know? I think is an advantage of this time period. It is I an mean... advantage of this time period, but it, it's it's kind of it, it's almost romantic in a way that Vertigo took so long to get accepted. You know? Yeah, and uh, I think that's what uh, makes it better too in the end because you know. This is, I mean, we look at it now, and it's obviously it's a masterpiece. It's one of one of the greatest films ever made. But to kind of see it just become forgotten, and uh, and then be discovered in the '80s, and it's funny too because in the '80s, I think they only they only came back to theaters like what only a few times. I think the last time it actually went back to theaters was in uh, 1983, 84, one of those years. But I remember reading about that, like that the film itself, like the actual film, was in so like disrepair. You know that they kind of had to go and restore it, but that really didn't take off until like the '90s, the mid '90s, when they finally restored the film. So uh, that kind of like, and like you said, it's it is like kind of a, kind of a romanticized way to look at it. You know, seeing it become forgotten and then you know discover rediscovered again and then restored. You know, kind of just brings the whole thing full circle. Yeah. So now that we've talked about it, uh, before we move on, is there any last words you want to talk about Vertigo? Um, I think we pretty much covered everything. I just want to say, though, that, uh, this was, I mean, I, I've rewatched it now, like, two or three times to prepare for, for, for the show, and, uh, I remember watching it the first time after film school, and, I mean, I liked it, but it, it wasn't really up there as far as my, uh, my Hitchcock movies, or just movies in general, and then I'll finally, you know, watching it again, hearing the freaking commentary, doing research on the film. And, you know, it, it really is. It might be up there now with, with my favorite Hitchcock movies because, 
you know, it's just, I just love like like I mentioned before. I just love the whole like kind of swerve that he that Hitchcock takes you on. It's it's a roller coaster. It's like all his movies are roller coasters, but this is a especially unique one I think because here like he takes you on this whole journey that you think is one thing, this one genre, and it turns out nope, it's something else entirely. And I just love swerves like that because at at the end, swerves work when it, when they surprise you and they don't insult your intelligence. And I, and I think this is what makes Vertigo work. Is that you know you the film takes you on this ride and when it finally does that swerve oh wait a minute this is actually a murder mystery and you know you've been had it's you feel like you know this is such a fun ride and you've been swerved just now and you want to keep going along with it because it didn't insult you in, in the way it, it performed that so I think that's what's unique about the film and you know it certainly deserves to be up there as one of the greatest of all time. I mean it's certainly one of the greatest films of all time. Period. Um, I, I, again, I, as I said earlier, I, I place it probably at my number two Hitchcock film, uh, right behind Rear Window at my number one, uh, just because I love Rear Window so much. Again, another Jimmy Stewart Hitchcock joint. Uh, I, I, I would put it, uh, but I would put it ahead of uh, Psycho and North by Northwest, which and uh, Strange on the Train, which round out my top five Hitchcock. Uh, but I mean, again, you can't go wrong with almost any Hitchcock. There's some some of his early stuff is a little, eh, but. But uh, in general, you anything from the '40s, '50s, or early '60s with Hitchcock, you you got gold. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely Definitely check out all that stuff. Uh, so now that we've talked about Vertigo, where can you watch it? Well, I don't believe that it is playing. It, it is uh, streaming anywhere for free, but you can uh, buy it and rent it digitally on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and Vudu. Uh, you can also buy the physical media, which we're both very big fans of physical media. Uh, I actually own this on two physical media. I own the uh, Universal Legacy series of DVD, and I own the uh, Alfred Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection Blu-ray. So um, the Blu-ray transfer is absolutely beautiful. Yes, it is. Uh, so uh, either one, they're both available for purchase uh, on your at wherever you buy DVDs and movies. Uh, so now we have uh, talked about Vertigo. What are we going to talk about next? Oh, next time. I'm excited, man. Uh, so let's... now the the random movie generator uh, is going to pick the next film. So let's let's uh, fire her up. Spin the wheel, make the deal. Let's go. And uh, yes, I did call it a her. Okay. So the random movie generator has now picked the following film, and it's a good one. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody oh! on the waterfront. Yes. Okay, this is great because now it gives me an excuse to go watch the beautiful, the beautiful Criterion restoration of this film. And I get to talk about it because it's like three different versions on that on that Blu-ray. And it's, oh my God. Yes, I'm, I'm very happy about this. Yeah, movie. on the waterfront, Marlon Brando's. Uh, not his star making performance because he's already a star in this film, but I think he, I think he won, this is when he won his first Oscar uh, for uh, and this won the also won the Oscar for best picture that year. Uh, one of the greatest films of all time, also a very controversial film. If you look at what was going on with the Hollywood blacklist at the time, I'm sure we'll yes. get into that stuff. Uh, and, and don't forget Lee J. Cobb, who plays the heel in this movie, is freaking awesome. Yeah, Lee J. Cobb's in this. Uh, yeah, and 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 again, as we said, the the most probably one of the most imitated uh, and quoted lines in movie history. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. A line that everyone knows, but I bet you 
only a fraction of those people actually know what movie it's from. Um, but uh, they know Brando says it at some point, you know. So, yes, On the Waterfront is our next episode. That's great. I'm, I'm excited. I'm even more excited now than I was for this one. Because I love that I, – I, I fell in love with that Criterion set as soon as I watched it. I watched all three versions. I have an excuse to now go rewatch all three versions again. And, it, oh, it, it's going to be awesome. I can't it, wait. You know, folks, it is a beautiful set. Um, and we – I would recommend before our next episode, if you don't already own it, if you are a, if you are a collector of physical media like uh, Mark and myself are, I would highly, 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 highly recommend the Criterion – blu-ray of this uh it is a beautiful set an absolutely gorgeous set so yeah uh, i would go out and get that the most one. definitely yes uh get that one uh, it is worth the money yes and i know the criterions are pricey but for this one i mean i'm not saying like like you know others aren't but like for especially this one it's worth it you know usually just wait for the for the 50 percent off sales or the flash sales but it, it, even at its retail it's worth it trust me okay so uh before we go uh i just let's throw a little plugs out there so uh you can find us uh the essential films uh on the web at the essential films podcast.com uh, uh currently uh, not a lot of not a ton of new content up right at this very second um but i am currently working on uh one of the things i like to do with the site is is create you know uh, countdown lists and my current countdown list that I'm working on that I hope to have up soon is the uh, 100 essential science fiction films. I've done horror films, I've done romances, uh, but now I'm going to try and do uh, science fiction, and it's it's a it's a daunting task. This one is, yeah, because I'm a big sci-fi fan, so it's uh, it's it, this one's it, narrowing it down to 100 was actually the hard part. So um, you can also email the show at EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com. You can like the Essential Films on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter at Essential Films. And please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, the more you like, rate, and review, the, the, the more recognition we'll get, and you know, the more episodes we'll do. So if you like the show, please do that. Uh, also, please check out Force Perspective, uh, our other podcast, we talk about more current films. We just wrapped up our Back to the Future trilogy. Uh, we also had a recent episode. Finally. Where, yeah, we finally. Uh, we, we also had a, a recent episode where we talked about uh, recent movies like Hail Caesar, uh, The Witch, 10 Cloverfield Lane. You went on a very long rant about Triple uh, Nine and London Has Fallen. That was a great <laughs> rant, by the way. Definitely check that out. But uh, the, don't forget to plug our most recent show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, go ahead. No, but we did that one, but then we did the uh, Batman versus Superman, which is yes. the most re- the last one. Yeah, I was did. I was gonna get to that, but I but you 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 oh, okay, stole, okay. you stole my thunder. Batman versus Superman, which is the the current movie. Uh, well, not dominating dominating box office anymore. Uh, and um, well, it didn't deserve to, so I- I'm glad. Yeah, we were we were not very kind to the film. Spoiler alert. Not very kind. I, I mean, it just hurt me on a personal level because <laughs> I'm such a Batman, Mark. And to see that, was it, it broke my heart. I'll be real. It broke my heart to see that. And uh, it, it, it was hard to be to treat the movie that way, but it, it deserved it. It's just there was no redeeming qualities to it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Everybody check out the episode. You know, listen for yourself. Check out the episode. I think we 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 go on a ninety minute burial of that film. Pretty much. So uh, check out that again. Put earmuffs on the kitties if you don't want them to listen to us dropping f bombs. Um, and we also have a Force Perspective Twitter handle. Yes, we do at FP Movie Podcast. So definitely follow us on there. 
Uh, and you can get updates on when episodes drop. Or we can do. We'll. I'll be doing some throwback Thursdays also every week where we go back to previous episodes we've done. Absolutely. And finally, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SportsGuy515. That's pretty easy to do. Uh, just follow me there. You also get up. I mean, on my Twitter, I talk mostly WWE lately, but I do drop some, you know, movie commentary here and there. So uh, definitely follow me there. Check that out. All right. So for uh, you have any final words to say to the people? Um, I think we pretty much covered it. Okay. So, uh, def- so again, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've seen Vertigo. So there's no need for me to say go watch it, but go watch it again and again and again because it's it's an awesome movie. Absolutely. So go watch Vertigo again. Go buy the uh, Alfred Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection. It'll cost you a pretty penny to buy it, but it's worth it because uh, you get all the movies we talked about earlier with Psycho and North by Northwest and Rear Window, and you get Vertigo uh, plus some other ones. But um, it's a very quality set. And absolutely watch On the Waterfront before our next show because uh, that's what our next show will be about. So yes. uh, until next time. Here I was born, and there I died. It was only a moment for you, and you took no notice. See you next time, folks. Bye.